This episode of the Durian Pod is brought to you by Hexclad, official cookware partner of TDP. Coming up on this episode of the Durian Pod. I was worried that they were going to think of me as a failure. When I had told them I was going to quit my very well-paying, comfortable job, my mom created a spreadsheet of all the lost like, opportunity costs, my lost salary, my lost benefits. Oh, wow. like, and she's like, this is what you're giving up. I had to move every single glass jar from the truck, probably 100 yards each way. So I was physically broken. I just remember thinking like, what did I get myself into? Like I am worse than a day laborer because I'm not even paying myself. I've just kind of been ignoring this aspect of my identity, building this business. Not a lot of Asian Americans are instilled with that confidence to do something different or to do something that's against the grain. I had to love myself to have the confidence to actually say I can build this business. Cheers. Cheers! Our guest today requested Nika coffee grain whiskey. The good stuff. The good stuff. I think it's amazing because it is a pure malt. It's got a really nice kind of licorice slash dark smoky taste in terms of the coffee bean itself, but it doesn't overwhelm any of it. And that's the beauty of this whiskey. I think it's a great choice. So yeah, nice job. She has good taste. Yes. Heidi and I are, are continuing our sober October situation into November just a little bit. And we're actually having some health aid strawberry flavor. Mm. It's quite bubbly and tasty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also, I'm doing both. Oh, you're doing yes, you so, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> You gotta have balance, mm. right? The kombucha will fix the stomach. Uh, it will, it will. That, well, that's the goal. <laughs> what is up, everybody? My name is David. And I'm Jasper. And behind the camera, we have our wonderful Heidi. Hey. This is another episode of the Durian Pod. This is the show where we showcase our friends who have fought against societal standards, but still made it to the top. Today, we have the queen of kombucha herself here today. She's the co-founder of the multi-million dollar brand Healthy Kombucha. Uh, you can find them all over the country at tens and thousands of stores, including giants like Costco and Whole Foods. She's a super mom of two, and she still has time to give back to her community, being a mentor with USC and being a super active member of Gold House. During Pod, give it up for Vanessa Dude. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be here, guys. Oh, please. Welcome to the show, Vanessa. How have you Thank been? You. Pretty darn good, I have to say. Life is nice with just enjoying life. Yeah, I was going to say, the last time I think I actually saw you, it was, was it your birthday? Or, it was. Yeah, that was a while ago. It and was. you just had a kid. Just had a kid. I was thir- turning 38, just had my second kid. Life was a little bit of a shit show, but I wanted to enjoy good food with my good friends. You provided that. Oh, thank you. And a year has flown by, and I have to say the year has been pretty good to me. That's really good to hear. Yeah. So, Vanessa, we've analyzed everything. We, we have a bunch of dishes that I think kind of inspired by actually your birthday dinner and then also a lot of the things that we've been doing new here at Roslyn since I've seen you over the last new, mm-hmm. last year or so. I'm going to actually start you off with what we do at Roslyn, which is the amuse or the amuse-bouche. That's always the first course. It's something new that we actually do here now where we pass it around during cocktail hour, but I wanted to share that bite with you. If you give me a minute, I'll go ahead and prepare that and oh be gosh. right back. Can't wait. <laughs> awesome. Ooh. Cool. When I ate here, it was like, I don't know exactly the dish, but you kind of said it, you liked it, likened it, Jasper, to the Chinese chimichurri. And hey, you had two choices. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry. Oh, really? Really? You read my mind. Yeah. Oh my gosh, really? Because it made me think of like my grandma and my mom, and it was just like home. So our amuse bouche this evening is not a true amuse bouche, like you said. It's basically like a three biter. You can break it up with a fork, or you can use your hands. We have a fresh focaccia bread. One of our chefs made it, and you know, beautiful olive oil. We use garaza, and that's just nice and bright and really nutty. The top though has three layers. We have a kimchi crema that we actually make our own kimchi, we blitz it, we strain it, and then we put it with a crema. And then on top of that, we have truffled burrata. And then we have ikura that we actually cure in-house. So fresh chives adorn it as well. A lot of different flavors, little spice, little sweet, little salt, but really it's just designed to kind of bring everything together and soak up that nika you're about to have. Oh my goodness. Yum. Delicious. Okay. I'm oh, excited yeah. for y'all let's to go. try it. And uh, please take your time in. eating all this stuff too. It's a big bite. Okay. This is a big amuse. 
Okay. <laughs> Big a That's the way. That's the way everything should be. I guess. That's like a boot. A boot. Yeah, with all capitals. Okay. <laughs> yes. I don't even know how to start. I'm just gonna eat it with my hands, but you could do whatever you want. I'm I, gonna try it with my hands because it, it looks like I should just. All right, should we just go? Away. I think we should just go in. What right. do you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have napkins for a reason, right? soaks up that kimchi and it adds that layer of like salty saltiness that I just mm. I love how you take like the individual simple ingredients and make it into something like beautiful together I, mean, I think that's what's beautiful about this and the Rosalind dishes oh thank you that means a lot we always like to start off with podcasts knowing uh, our guests' origin, where they came from, the upbringing of the family. So give us maybe some more detail on that. Yeah. So I am probably one of the few non-LA transplants from Los Angeles. I feel like I rarely meet people from LA, but I'm Chinese. I'm Chinese-American. And my dad, I was born in Shanghai. My mm. mom was born in Taishan, actually, which is in like Southern China, so Can Canton area. My dad fled communism. He went to Hong Kong and then moved here when he was in high school. Same with my mom. She came here as a you know, young girl. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of my upbringing has really been influenced by that type of immigrant experience. I would say like less so them, actually more so my grandmother who on my dad's side, she is just like a fierce woman. She, her husband passed away in a freak accident. So she grew up, you know, she raised her two kids, my dad and my aunt mm -hmm. by herself, like communism by herself brought them here, but you know, just yeah. a lot of things that are really just she spearheaded and her cooking, her spirit really informed, I think, me growing up. Yeah. And I grew up in Encino, which is typically a very homogenous. When, when did you come over? They came over in like the 1960s. I see. Um, to Encino. To, well, technically to K-Town, actually. Okay, got it, got it. And then they moved, um, my dad moved to Encino when, I guess... When you make it, I don't know, you know, when they tried to gentrify or mm -hmm. go into like the nicer area. Yeah. And so, but she raised me basically like until I was going to school and her spirit definitely, I feel like lives here. So you're now in Encino mm -hmm. and then what was your, I guess, designated career path? Because I feel like that's kind of like a, a common theme between, you know, uh, immigrant parents is like, like, we want you to do this because we've had such a hard life in wherever yeah. um, that this is what you should do, you know? So what, I guess, what was that experience for you? Well, growing up in Encino is very homogenous in terms of just the people that live there is very white. I was probably one of 10 Asian people in my high school. Yeah. And I feel like because of that, I was always pegged as the smart one or really good at math and science, which I was, but oh, okay. that's besides the point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think because of that, plus with just expectations of my parents wanting me to have a really safe, successful career, which they thought was doctor or lawyer, I was always on the path to be a doctor. And MD. An MD. I see. Yes. And my mom actually got sick when I was six years old. And so pretty bad anemia anemia. And so mm. she was in and out of the hospital for a long time. She later got cancer, but I remember at a young age, I thought I'm going to cure her cancer no matter what. Like, so when I was very young, altruistically, I wanted to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. But as I grew up, I think more practically and more expectation wise, my family thought I should be a doctor. And so it kind of fell into this like circular reference of just, well, I should be a doctor. So I will be a doctor. Do I want to be a doctor? Yeah, I think I do. And so that really informed my major in college. I you know, went to go major in science and bioengineering. And that's kind of informed my path into college. Yeah. But at the heart of it, I wasn't excited by it. I mean, sure. I, I like science and mm -hmm. I am kind of a nerd, but I'm not, I wasn't going to be a doctor by just because I wanted to. Right. So you were motivated by, you know, um, because you wanted to, you know, help family, but it wasn't, it wasn't so much that your family pushed it on you. Or was um, there a little bit of that or? I would say definitely in high school, my dad would nudge me in certain ways. He was mm. like, well, clearly you should be a doctor or yeah. clearly you'll major in biomedical engineering at mm. UCSD. Clearly you'll do this. And mm. so it was kind of just laid out there. Mm. And I never was, 
I think I had a strong enough voice to say what I wanted to do or say anything different than what other people thought I should do. Yeah. So I just went along with it. Because it also felt safe to me and it felt natural. And I it wasn't at the time, healthcare was like booming too. Like it was like, I don't want to say cool. I mean, yeah, it was cool to be like a doctor or cool to be a nurse. And like that was what was booming then. Like it how, still is. how tech is. Well, not so much like kind of how tech is now. Oh, got it. It's yeah. like the thing to do. Yeah. Back then, I'm probably dating myself, but like being a nurse, being a doctor, that was like, you, you, to do that, that, means, that meant you were successful. Yeah, there's a title there. There was like a, right. st- like a, a some type of prestige. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, but I quickly learned after college, I'm like, wow, I think I was disillusioned by the whole medical system, just seeing my mom's, you know, going through the medical mm-hmm. system, but also the motivations of doctors today. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is very hard to actually make money, first of all. And then people yes. are trying to make money within yeah. the system, which leads them to make not great decisions for the care of the patient. So, right. you know, the altruism that I originally had when I was just a young girl was totally thrown out the window because I'm like, oh, everyone's just trying to do their own thing and get ahead. Mm-hmm. But that's not really advancing technological or scientific advancement for the better of like the sick. And so like right. my disillusionment plus my lack of real motivation to be in it led me to not want to be in it. Right. It's like that saying that the system is all designed not to cure, but to just kind of like patch. Yeah. And just kind of make you survive. Yeah. And that's just really sad, right? Yeah, totally. And yeah. Um, I saw that firsthand because when I decided I wasn't going to be a doctor midway through college, I was like, okay, well, I need to get jobs. So I was like, well, I'm not going to work in a back of house in a medical you know, company. I'm not going to be in the lab. But I do think I could work in the front of house. So I went into sales and marketing. Mm. But in that capacity, I saw exactly the sick care that mm-hmm. happened. And it... The business side. The business side. And it wasn't preventing anything. And it wasn't, you know, using food as medicine. And it wasn't using preventative measures, diet and exercise, to Mm -hmm. really get to the core of, like, good health and, like, healthy habits. Um, And I think that's what really didn't sit the right way. Right. I am very curious. You mentioned that your grandmother was, like, a driving force for you, right? What was her opinion about like your career path too? Was she very aligned with your parents or was it more so like, do you, you know? You know, she was um, much to the chagrin of my dad, probably. I think she'd be like, don't listen to your dad. <laughs> Just, um, yeah, kind of do you. Yeah. She's like, she didn't say do what makes you happy. Cause I don't think that's innately what Asian old people say, right? No. Like elderly people don't say that. But she just said, you, know, you have to think about like, well, what's going to, make your name i guess mm-hmm. and like she she said it in a way that was like what's gonna what's gonna make you you and she said also your dad may not like it so you should just do you <laughs> and then, so uh, it was kind of yeah. just like a fun a relationship that we had yeah. and so she supported me in anything and i loved her for that that's really beautiful yeah, yeah. i love grandparents like yeah. they they were once parents, so they were the ones saying like, "Don't do that, do that, that. Uh-huh. you know, like oh, you're yeah. a failure." But then like, what's, <laughs> but then then they're oh, like, yeah. "Whatever, do whatever." Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's it's a transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. So then, how how far did you take that healthcare career? Like you said, the sales. Yeah, a couple years. I yeah. mean, I was very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed because, like, once I'm in something, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go all in. But once I became disillusioned and I realized I was kind of on this hamster wheel and then I was working for, like, the man for a Fortune 50 company, I was like, I don't think this is where I'm meant to be. Yeah. Which is when I decided to go to business school. And luckily, thankfully, to my company, they paid for my business school. So I kind of... Did go to business school by night, work in the day. I also didn't tell them the whole fact that I wanted to pivot out of that yeah. industry. So you know, I thought I was going to become a consultant after business school because that was the jet setting life of anyone who goes to business school, truthfully. And so yeah. I thought I was going to pivot to be a consultant. But I, I started to take classes in social entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship and it really spurred in me what I felt like I had ever since I was a little girl is Mm. this interest in starting my own business and that's where it really started to take on a life of its own. When did you make the transition from health care to health aid? Oh! (laughs) You'll be here all night. Well out of health care I knew out of business school I was going to leave health care no matter what. Yeah. And it was going to either be pivoting at consulting or working at, I don't know, 
a, like a big company, maybe project, I don't know, something in with an executive title, let's just say, because that's what happens to business school people. But in the middle of business school, I started taking social impact classes. And what really like lured me into this world was this idea that you could build something and you can have like a legacy. And there's these fantastic stories of these entrepreneurs building amazing businesses that help people that like made a difference in the world that like changed technology, changed mm-hmm. the way that we live. And that just pulled me in like no other. And so I started taking more and more entrepreneurship classes. And then there was this one class called feasibility and it was a whole like start your own business mm-hmm. at the end of the class was yay or nay. Are you going to move forward or not? And I remember because my mom had cancer at the time I was, my business was cancer comforts and it was all about caretakers for cancer patients and how to give them the right resources, the right support, mental health wise, the right products that you need to buy, not just for yourself really, but for the Mm -hmm. cancer patients. And I remember sitting, it was my birthday. Birthdays come very often up here, very often, but it's my birthday. I was talking to my best friends, now co-founders about this, you know, what's going on in my life. I'm starting this business. And I asked them, I was like, Oh, what do you think? I'm like, I don't know about that, but like, this is kind of fun. We should talk about this more often. And we're like, okay, cool. So we started doing that. We just had dinner like this, Mm. talking about different pains that we're going through, what could be solutions to those pains Mm -hmm. and flushing out some of those ideas. And that was really the start of HealthAid and our mastermind entrepreneur club that started us on that path to get to HealthAid. And the rest is history. Within that transition or during that transition, I should say, from your pharma to this entrepreneurship, kombucha heavy base, what were some of the fears that you kind of remember of, of making that transition? Oh my goodness. How am I going to live like money wise? What are people going to think of me? What are my parents going to think of me? Will we make it? That one less so because I was a little bit like fearless at the time, just like, whatever, like we're going for it. But the big one was, I think, what are people going to think of me? What are, what's my family going to think of me? And just how will I live? Because I didn't really have, I mean, I was in my mid twenties and didn't have a huge nest egg to live off of. Yeah, That's why I pulled out a student loan to live off of at USC. And I didn't use it to fund school. I just used it to fund a year of living. Yeah. And because we didn't take a salary at Health Aid. Mm-hmm. And so that was meant to, I, I gave myself a year. If I, you know, after a year, if we wouldn't have made it or we didn't have money coming in, then I told myself I would be competent enough to find a job and, and then go from there. Can you, can you actually, dis- just rewinding a little bit back, can you dissect when you said, you know, you're, one of the fears was how people, you know, whether it's your parents or friends, like viewed you? Like mm. what was that fear specifically? Like, I mean, we can assume, but like what was kind of going on emotionally like with that with that fear? Like, because honestly, like if, if our friend said, hey, we want to start a kombucha company, we would say like, oh, cool. Like, let me know when a pop-up is, we'll be there. But you know, to, to do it on your own, like yeah. it, it's different because you experience a different thing. Yeah. So with my family, specifically my parents, I was worried that they were going to think of me as a failure. So when I had told them I was going to quit my very well-paying, comfortable job, they, well, my mom created a spreadsheet of all the lost like opportunity costs, my lost salary, my lost benefits, oh, wow. like in a very nicely packed <laughs> number in that cell. And she's like, this is what you're giving up. And she quantified that. And she also thought I was like heartbroken. She, so both my parents were like, oh, you're like, did you just break up with someone? Are you doing this because you're depressed? And so they thought I was just being emotional or like mm. lashing out. And so I, I wanted to prove them wrong. And I also wanted to just show them I wasn't a failure and I wasn't doing this because of whatever maybe extraneous factors. And so I think that was a huge piece as to like why I really worked to make it. In whatever I did. But my friends, a lot of them were supportive, but I think a lot of them, they were just skeptical as to the choice. They're like, what? You're going to give up your job? And I don't get it. And I actually Mm. lost a couple friendships where we had like a gap in communication just for a period of time because they didn't understand my life choices. And so, I mean, you guys know when you start something new, you're kind of like all in on that. Mm -hmm. So because I was all in on health aid, I wasn't all in on other things as in... Mm maybe going out in the same way or like seeing certain people or just hanging out sometimes. And so because of that, friendships changed. And that affected, I think, 
what I thought was a really strong friendship. And I was like, well, I'm working on something. And I tried to prove it to them that I was trying to work on something so that yeah. I had something to show from it. Mm. Yeah. That is that is a, probably the most difficult part about this journey, right? Is I think this was a conversation I had with one of my mentors like two years ago when I was first starting out Rosalind is like, I noticed a huge drop off of friends. And he pointed out to me that the people that you surround yourself with that you call friends are usually people of convenience. You grew up around them, you went to school with them, and they just happen to be around you. And your common interests are, let's say, partying or drinking, or, or maybe if you're even in an entrepreneurial club, right? And you leave that, or you're part of your finance crew, or for me, it was my tech crew, mm. all my tech bros. And like, then I left that, and I'm doing this, and then a lot of them didn't get it. Like, mm. even though it's food, which is a very common thing for people to understand, they just still didn't get it. Yeah. And then there would be these, like, kind of disputes. And I think what you would describe, like, miscommunications where they're like, oh, you don't care about us anymore. You're not hanging out with us anymore. Yeah. It's a hard sacrifice, too. But then yeah. I also realize, I guess, now for me personally, and maybe you hopefully feel the same way, is, like, it was worth the sacrifice. It totally was. Yeah. yeah. And you kind of realize, like, who was meant to be in your inner circle always and who was kind of just that extra not really caring about your well-being or not. And it was yeah. worth the sacrifice what we created too. In 2019, you you wrote an article and it's titled How Embracing My Chinese Heritage After Rejecting It for 18 Years Taught Me How to Respect Myself and Find the Courage to Become an Entrepreneur. What was the catalyst on that and like what compelled you to write that? Because it was a very, you know, reading it was a very vulnerable piece mm -hmm. and, you know, it's out there and it, I mean, I loved what it stood for and so, yeah. Yeah, so... The, the story itself was, you know, I grew up in a very like white community. So, you know, being Asian on the weekends and kind of trying to conform on the weekdays led me to live very like a, a double lifestyle kind of. And so it it allowed me or you know, I started to hate myself growing up because I was like, I just want to do what my friends are doing, which is nothing Asian. And so I started to become racist against myself. And so in college, I remember... My mom, like, we had to go to San Gabriel to do some family thing. And my mom, I just said, oh, I rolled my eyes. I was like, why do we have to do this and go to the temple or something? And my mom just yelled at me. She's like, you know, you hate yourself. You're never going to be anything. You're not going to, you don't love yourself. And you hate what you see in the mirror. And it was, like, the harshest my mom has ever been. But it allowed me to just, like, wake up, I guess, and just, like, look at the mirror honestly and just say, like, wow, I am Asian. Why have, why have I been hating myself. I wouldn't, I would never date Asian guys. It was like, it was weird when I really look back. And why I decided to write this is growing up in the CPG world, which is consumer packaged goods, food and beverage. There's not a lot of people that look like me either. There's maybe like maybe 20 Asian founders that exist that I actively know. That's not very many when you think about the yeah. thousands of brands out there. And I just remember in 2017, I spoke on the panel of an ABA, Asian Business Association, like women's symposium. And I looked around the room and I saw all these Asian faces. And I was like, wow, Asians in business are powerful. Why, have I been not, why haven't I been leaning in to this aspect of my identity? Mm -hmm. And I really dug in. I was like, wow, like I've just kind of been ignoring this aspect of my identity building this business. And then that's when I started to give back to places like Gold House and become an advisor for their accelerator. And I just felt like for me, there's a coming of age as well in building this business that I'm an Asian female building a CPG brand and that doesn't have to be hidden. And I had to love myself to have the confidence to actually say I can build this business. And I feel like not a lot of Asian Americans are instilled with that confidence to do something different or mm. to do something that's against the grain. And I felt like I was compelled to share that type of identity um, and that strength in my own self-identity. Yeah, if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the, uh, the article, it's, it was very moving. So thank you, thank for, you. for sharing it at the time. You know, it has um, been a while, but... Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that so resonates with me. I am also a female CPG founder mm. as well. And yeah, so you and I actually met at the Asian founded cool. Roslyn Supper Club thing. Okay. This probably won't be in the thing, but. Rude Affair? Yes, oh yes, my yes, gosh, yes, yes. okay. Oh, Sorry, I should have said connection. that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so many people. So anyway, that's me and my co-founder, Ashley. So we, I feel like maybe are, you know, on this journey, a very similar one as you. And I feel like becoming an entrepreneur has taught me so much about 
I think like leaning into myself and like my strengths. And also I feel like you have to really like look those fears straight on all the time. Cause like I realized I was like so fearful to like put myself out there. Cause you know, I was taught to be the quiet and like just obedient girl. And so I feel like, you know, gender and like race and just like where we grew up played such a role in how we approach being business owners. But business, I think, and being now in this community has like emboldened me Mm -hmm. and like made me like fully embody this like body and like this dream that I have. Yeah. And so it's like, it's amazing. I'm really excited to read your article. Oh, yeah. Wow. And Rooted Fair is like a regular staple in my house like my son like that he doesn't really eat peanut butter or like toast Uh and so like that is his like regular thing oh my god that's so nice i love that i i I see what i hear you guys story it reminds me of like when aladdin was like prince ali Mm -hmm. but then he still had to remember that he was aladdin you know Mm. what i mean and at the end of the movie he's like you know what i can be both Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was just like it was just like yeah. No. Anyways, with that note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I feel like it's interesting because it's like he always was like everything that he didn't change. Yes. It's just like the title, but he always had that like princeliness in yeah. him, and so a lot of it I think is like unlearning a lot of like what we learn along the way. Like after we're born, like we're taught all these things by maybe our families, maybe by society, maybe both. Yeah. But it is like shedding kind of those things that hold us back, mm-hmm. including maybe even like when we talked about like friendships, too. It's like all just like weight coming off of you. Yeah. 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 Like I love but I'm curious too, like, you know, just speaking more deeply about I'm, I'm sure you talk about this in the article. But do you feel like I mean, you know, growing up Asian American and you talked about like your grandma and your family being these um, key figures for you. I find that there are some like beliefs that really like push you to a certain level of success. But once you get there, there's like maybe those same beliefs actually hinder you. So I'm wondering if there are any of those like beliefs or things that you yourself like had to shed to like get to the next level. Yeah, I think one of them is like hard work. Don't get me wrong. You need to put in the hard work. Grit, I think, is like a need to have if you're going to start a business and especially if you're going to build a scalable business. So you need that. But at a certain point, that work hard needs to turn into like work smart. And so like you can't work harder all the time. You're just going to either, you know, send yourself to the grave. Yeah. You're not going to scale beyond yourself. And so like that's like that's why I view a lot of some of these like elderly Asian business owners not being able to grow their businesses cuz their belief I believe I I think is to only do it yourself or to like stay so inward. And so mm-hmm. like when I think about how to scale a business, you have to go beyond that idea a little bit around like how do you then work smart? How do you work through a team? And that's not typically uh, a traditional elderly Asian belief. I, I am kind of curious, a question for both of you then, is both of you kind of had these aha moments where you guys were emboldened to kind of embrace your culture right? Uh, just hearing Heidi right now. And then also, of course, knowing your background, was there something that just really was that moment that you'd like to share? Or was it kind of more of a progression for you? It was a progression, yes. But I remember in 2017, I guess a pivotal year, but like, we hired a bunch of people. And I remember going into a distributors warehouse meeting or something like that. It was like, we're going to go in my VP at the time wanted me to go in with him to talk about the brand and the vision how he started. And the CPG world is typically a very old boys club and it's typically a very old white boys club. And so to see like a younger Asian female come in, like that's not typically how it is. And I remember that particular distributor owner just thinking that I was like the intern and like, cause I'm not, I'm not about to go peacock and be like, Oh, Hey, I own health aid. What's your name? You know? And so I remember like, oh, hey, like you brought your intern with you, like to my VP of sales. And I was like, Vanessa, I'm co-founder. You know, like I was like, okay, trying to play it off. But like conversation got progressively condescending in a way that like, I don't think he knew what he was saying, but it definitely was very like, oh, honey. Or like you know, just things that I think are innately within his 
way of speaking mm-hmm. that made me think, oh, hell no, right? <laughs> yeah. So like, it was at that moment where I'm like, okay, we need to have a bigger voice. And when I say we, like females, but oh. then also like the Asian American identity that I carry and healthy not being a Asian American flavor profile, right? I just felt like it was important to tell the story on a personal level and how I and how I got here to build health aid. Yeah. Yeah. Which which gives you an even stronger voice because you're you're not leaning onto a niche. It's like this is for this is for everybody. Yeah. I'm still I'm still here, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting right next to you. Yeah. 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 Like we could build this brand and yep. I'm this person. That's dope. Yeah. I love that. I think for me too, well, actually I feel like it was a progression. I kind of share the experiences of like hating on my own culture. I think that's how it began. Like, I love what you said about like you're a weekend Asian and then you're like not when you're going to school. <laughs> like as soon as yeah, I, I you're like moonlighting as an Asian person when you're like at home. And like I remember as soon as I like set foot through the door, I was like speaking Mandarin only because my mom doesn't speak English. I went to like Chinese after school after you know K through twelve, but at K through twelve I was like oh, I love my PB&Js and pizza and cookies. Yeah, I was like <laughs> like that. But I think I really understood the importance of just knowing who I was when I had to leave for college. I didn't go very far. It was actually still in Southern California and it was a 40 minute drive from where I grew up. But it was like the biggest culture shock of my life. Cause it was, I think I was like one of three Asian people in my school and in my academy and we all kind of just like gravitated towards one another like later but I just felt like you know I kind of was in this like little circle of friends and they made these jokes and they had these references and I had no idea what they were talking about and I was like god is there something wrong with me am I crazy and then through the year I just felt like I like I never really showed myself to them because I wanted to fit in. And I felt like I lost, I think, myself through that. And I could feel myself receding because I'm like very extroverted and I love to share and be with people. But during that semester and year, I like receded into myself. So I, I think it was like summertime. I was like going home and I don't remember exactly what it was. But being part of an Asian student association, I think, helped me to like find like my people and like them talking about their experiences as like juniors and seniors, finding like, oh, like there's this dumpling spot 30 minutes away and that's our favorite spot. I yeah. think reconnecting through food with my community showed me that, you know, it there was so much value in like just being comfortable with myself. So that really, I think skyrocketed like my process. And I also saw these freshmen too, who were just as lost as I was back then. So I became like president of my Asian student association at my school, did all that. And I guess that's how I got into that. Wow. Thank you both yeah, for sharing. I, I, I know it was a little bit of a tangent, but I just, I was very curious because no, sure. it yeah. seems like you've paved the path and now you're on that path and it's just kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's awesome. To, Thanks, to Vanessa. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm still, I'm in it too. Yeah. So. Well, listen, we know it's late. Let's let's keep the courses coming. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I think we're it. ready. So the next course is going to be what we call the favorite dish. It is a main course that we serve at Roslyn, and this one's particularly tailored to you because we serve this at your birthday, but this is version 2.0. So I'll be right back, and I'm excited for this because I can't wait to eat this also. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, awesome. Thanks. During your birthday, one of the things you told me that you loved was Australian Wagyu. So we brought back that exact same cut. This is Australian Wagyu Zabuton from our friends over at Ligma Provisions. This is a BMS 8-9. For our friends who aren't familiar with that, that's beef marbling score. The Aussies rate their steak from 1 to 12. For comparison, a Japanese A5 is a 12 out of 12. A US Prime is a 2 out of 12. And tonight <laughs> we are enjoying an 8-9. And the Zabuton is a beautiful top cut of the short rib. So I'm actually going to go and cut it tableside just like what we do, Roslyn. We are serving it with our new version of our Sichuan cilantro chimichurri. And this is actually, for fun, the new CPG version we're developing. Ooh. Yeah. Breaking news. Breaking news. <laughs> bam, 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 bam. Oh my goodness, what? 
Yeah. I can't wait to try that. So it is self-stable, which is the best part. Okay. So cool. And we're trying to figure out how to distribute and get that all going, but that's that's what's gonna happen. So anyway, Gosh. let me go ahead and slice this up. Everyone gets a nice big chunk. Look at that knife just I know. slicing through. I feel like it's such a treat. Let's see if the, the steak does it, if it needs extra salt. David, does it need salt? I'm sorry? Does it need salt? <laughs> uh, I'll let you know in a second. Right. I would say no. <laughs> no, that was good. Delicious. So yeah, this cut of steak is very prized. Very few percent of it actually leaves Australia because mm. they save it for themselves. It's also just because it's got so much texture. It's almost like a New York strip meets mm -hmm. ribeye cap fattiness. But we're very, very thankful for our friends over at Ligma for getting this for us. I believe we are only one of like three or four places in California that actually have this cut. I mean, I don't even know where to get Australian Wagyu besides Rosalind. Yeah. Got you covered. Yeah. Anytime. While everyone's enjoying their steak, you have to understand why Gordon Ramsay calls it the Rolls Royce of pans. And that's why we use Hexclad exclusively here at Rosalind and on the Durian Pod. Not only do they have these incredible knives that Vanessa was just talking about right here, but also this cutting board that's made out of walnut, and of course, their three-layer hex-clad pans that have really changed the game. And we use them not just because they're amazing, <laughs> but because they are non-stick, they act like a cast iron, and they have the power of a multi-layer stainless mm. steel, it's just to die for, so. And we'll see you back on the show. All right, Vanessa, we know Health Aid is killing it, we know you've been killing it, but I'm sure there was not a, uh, a lack of failures and, and hard times. So tell us maybe like a profound moment where you just absolutely, you know, fucking failed and you were like, you know what? We, sh we should probably call it quits. I mean, probably more times than I can count on my appendages. Early on, there was this time, early, early on, it was like 2013. I had quit my job, uh, my, my pharma job at the time. And... I was still at business school, but I remember we we're growing the business. And so at the time, we we're making it in these two and a half gallon glass jars. And we were buying two them. Two gallon glass jars? Yes. Like cookie jars that you buy from Bed Bath & Beyond. Okay, yeah. Rest in peace, BBB. But like we used those 20% off coupons at the time to buy all these glass jars, brew the kombucha in our you know, kitchen. And we decided to save money and buy direct from the wholesaler. Mind mm. blown. Like, let's do it. And so we bought... Huge order, 200 glass jars, and we were cheap though, so we didn't opt for inside delivery. So what we didn't know what that meant, and when the truck pulled up, that meant they didn't deliver it inside a certain line. You had to then mm -hmm. move it out yourself. Sorry, it's kind of funny. Yeah, it was hilarious <laughs> until I'm like moving. Retrospectively. All, yeah, it was like very... Um, jarring because I was oh. the only one oh, this is, I, like um, that. I like that I was the only one working that day oh, and wow. I had to move every single glass jar from the truck and the truck driver is just sitting there because he's union and just staring at me not moving mm. a finger yeah. moving it from that truck probably a hundred yards each way so you know just doing manual labor I was physically broken I was like so mentally these are, broken these are empty though right they're empty. Okay, thank yeah, you. So oh, they're very them, heavy. They're, yeah, 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 they're sure. heavy. No, yeah. I just remember thinking, like, what did I get myself into? Like, I am I am worse than a day laborer because I'm not even paying myself, you know? And so that was just, like, a physical failure to me. And so I just remember breaking down crying and calling my co-founders being like, what are we doing? This isn't right. Like, mm. we have to find a way to scale beyond this. Fast forward, you know, many failures. I think the biggest failure would probably be the people when we had to either let them go fire them or when people left us it was just the right time because our business scaled beyond the team and we needed to really grow in a different direction and um, I don't regret it necessarily but letting someone go always eats at you and so sure. it just feels like a failure of having foresight to plan the right way to avoid some of those hard discussions yeah, it, it sounds like th these failures that, you know, are kind of stick with you, those are more of like rite of passage. Like inevitably, if you own a company, especially a successful company as yours, you're going to have to do these things. You're going to have to do the grunt work and lift jars, you know, and you're going to yeah. have to, for what for reasons X, Y, and Z, you're going to have to maybe, you know, let someone go. And, and no one wants to do that. And yeah, that's, thanks for sharing because that's, that's tough. 
Yeah, it's, you know, you're in the people business regardless. Yeah. Anytime you run a business and being able to, I think, what your needs, it's a very much like the analogy you were talking about with friends, right? Yeah. Very much like the people you want or need at the beginning, that evolves. It and does. then it's like, maybe that your time has come or that person's time has come. But I think that's the hardest part, especially in the, you know, in the food industry. Yeah. Because it's so personal. It is. How did you keep it together? What was the mindset during these particular moments where you're just kind of like, you know what, you know, fuck this? Well, it was always like an initial like, oh, what the hell? Like, oh, what the fuck? Luckily, I had co-founders that like when one of us were in these moments of like heard, there was another or two that could pick us up. Right. And so when one was up, one was down, one was up and vice versa. You know, it was really bad when all three of us were like, oh, my God, she's hitting the fan. (laughs) But that was rare. So that was a a big relief is having a a co-founding team that you could lean on. I had a coach. So later on, as we grew Health Aid, we got executive coaches for ourselves. And that really helped in the rationalizing of some of these more like business decisions. Like life coach. Life coach oh, and see. business coach. So oh, as an executive coach. And then, you know, I started to build kind of like my tribe outside of Health Aid, where whether it be YPO, that were other CEOs and founders I could like vent to and knew exactly these milestones I had to go through or these issues or these like fires but they could like give me true experience shares and like that really helped me feel like not alone and then also leaning on other founders that were going in the same stage of business and like Mm -hmm. it was truly not like give me a solution it was like like this is what I'm going through right now and it just sometimes helps to just vent yeah I think that's something that we as a team have especially the Roslyn team is starting to figure out right we finally I think after it took three years to really kind of make a stride to be able to start branching out into different projects and meeting different people from all walks of life, like entertainment and, and distribution and now CPG and, and of course yeah. our food stuff and, and realizing like, I think all these people are able to, they're not necessarily here for solutions, right? I think that's the best part. It's almost like a, like an entrepreneurial therapy session. Yeah. Where it's like, I can't believe this is happening. Like this person stole from me or this person did that, or this person like caused us to go through this type of disdain or strain. And it's like, all. Oh, well, us too. Yeah. That happened to us. Yeah. You can't talk to your team <laughs> right. about it because they're sometimes involved. Mm-hmm. You can't talk to sometimes your significant others because you just they just either don't want to hear about it, don't get it, or like it's yeah. just yeah. two shifts in the night a little bit. And you also just somewhat want someone to validate you, like been there, done that, yeah. or like, yeah, I'm here. I hear you. I get it. And I, you know, we'll sit in the stuff together. Health Aid started in 2012 which is very early, especially in the CBG game, right? Your peers are, were, they didn't look like you or they couldn't kind of relate. So during your come up, who did you look to towards as your like role models? Yeah, so in actual CPG, I don't think I had role models per se. There was one in CPG and she was definitely far off from what I'm doing right now, but it, she was the ex-CEO of Pepsi, mm-hmm. Indra Nuhi, and she was really the only like, Asian, South Asian, female, of like real prestige or like honor that I felt like was in any type of executive role. So I'm like, wow, she's doing some awesome things. Yeah. Now, I didn't want to be CEO of Pepsi, but I feel like she was a great representative of like what it means to achieve something and break this like bamboo ceiling, if you will. Hmm. When I think I like about that. like outside of the CPG world, my mom was a huge like role model for me yeah. because she really... Even though she was six since I was really young, to as long as I can remember, she was always an optimist and always a fighter. She always showed up to everything within my childhood, but yet she was an executive at a Fortune 100 company. And so she showed me what it was like to, ha- to have your own life as a working woman, but also be a really present, great mom. Now, I've also learned some things from her. I'm like, I don't want to just sacrifice myself for everyone else. But she was a huge role model for me, as well as my grandma. And then a couple of my professors at USC, because I feel like I, it's typically white men in the professor world, but there are a couple that I just remember, one was in the entrepreneurship office, 
like Dean Ellis was also one. Like I thought mm-hmm. he was, you know, just a really stand up gentleman. Mm-hmm. And then no one in my pharmaceutical life actually was really a real ro- role model there. That sounds right. I mean, yeah. They're just fun, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But when I think about Asian American leaders, I actually look to like, a couple celebrities and like Ming-Na was like the one that I can remember mm-hmm. just showing up in Joy Luck Club. I was like, wow, she's really pretty. And she can be on screen. Like, yeah. I just remember, like, she, like, had smarts and beautiful and held her own. And I just remember from a really young age, really gravitating to her always. It was, like, the presence. Yeah. And, then like, like, you know, the attraction to, to that. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. What's, like, a piece of advice that, a specific piece of advice that you hold dear to you that mm-hmm. you can give to maybe people that are, also in the entrepreneurship track. So this came from my mom, actually, but I heard it from someone else. It's like, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. And it helped me have a voice because if you don't ask for a salary raise in your job, you're just never going to get it. If you don't ask, hey, would you be willing to take health aid? They're just never going to attempt to take it, right? Like, if if you don't put it out there, no one's going to just by the sheer pure joy of their own desire, <laughs> do it because they right. don't know that that's what you desire um, or that's what you're angling for. Um, so putting it out there is something that I really learned from my mom. And then, you know, another person I met in the industry. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. This is the same mom that we were just talking about that made a spreadsheet talking about opportunity costs. Yes. Yes. Oh, wow. She also happened to sew all of our demo, all of our tablecloths for our demos uh-huh. oh. um, because as much as she didn't agree with my decision she was still like a ride or die for her daughter you know like she would still like support me and stuff so yeah that does sound a lot like my mom shout out moms oh i know (laughs) seriously so you you've since left health aid actually yeah and you are taking a you know a break as you should you deserve that break because you've been grinding for like literally a decade but have you thought about what is next for you in the horizon or what you want to kind of take on? Yeah. So, you know, it's been like, I don't know, eight months of resting and I'm getting itchy because I'm kind of like bored a little bit now. Yeah. But in my heart of hearts, I'm like, you know, I've really enjoyed working with female founders and Asian American entrepreneurs. So there's energy there for me to give back, mm. whether it's through advising or coaching and really developing that aspect of my energy. And there's also like other products that I'm interested in creating, not within food and beverage, because I know I have a little PTSD from that world. (laughs) No, you know, good luck. (laughs) Keep on going. Um, (laughs) But I'm interested in the kids space, actually. Yeah. Especially now that I do have kids, I find opportunities to, either educate or bring products that really help enrich their lives and or parents' lives to make them easier. So the only type, I mean, going back to CPG, the only product that I would be interested in is like AI tech to help forecasting and demand inventory, the whole thing. So Mm. like something there needs to be revolutionized because it is archaic in the world Mm. of CPG and planning. So I'll say that. Any opportunity, any people listening, there's opportunity there. So, And she's spearheading it, no? Yeah. <laughs> Potentially. Maybe. I, I need a product designer. I'm not techie, so I would need something like that. That's I might amazing. know some people from the tech days. Yeah. <laughs> Before we sign off, we have a really cool roster of new products here. You want to just kind of give a little spiel about them? Because I, I think everyone's familiar with the high-quality glass bottles that yeah. are, you know. So we launched our can product in our core flavors that are our top sellers. Why we launched cans is really just the convenience factor for people being able to take them to the beach, to you know, have at stadiums where glass isn't really allowed. So there's just another form factor for consumers to continue to enjoy healthy and have great guts along the way. Yeah. And I really love the design. It's like very, what's the word I'm looking for? It's very approachable. Yeah. Like, I like the little cartoons on the yeah. side, but that's also, I love cartoons, so. Yeah, and that's another thing is on the glass, we had that on the glass, well, not that one, but mm-hmm. the other the other line, but we have cartoons on there, but you can't see as much because the bottle's so big, so right. this gives a little bit more visual display real estate. So, at the end of the show, we do something that we also do at the end of every Roslyn is the final bite. It is the most decadent, 
luscious, got everything going on type of thing. And it'll take me a couple minutes, but you're ready. Oh, ready. Yeah, I'm ready. ready. <laughs> okay. I'm excited. I'll be right back. Okay. so hot that it smokes. Whoa. And you can see the fat coming down almost like hellfire. It turns yeah. blue. And actually will light up I mean, the things on there. Those strips. For your final bite is always the decadent one we were talking about. We have imported Hokkaido scallops. I figured because you love scallops and you just told me that cute story about you and Kevin, I'd just give you two scallops just because. <laughs> the top is Hokkaido uni. And this is a really sweet one that we just picked up from the Japanese food fair. On top of that is the ikura. And I wanted the ikura to burn under that Iberical pork fat. And you'll see in the video, bright blue lights kind of shoot down because it gets over 500 degrees. Wow. It's just so hot. And what it does is it kind of chars it and it seals in all that beautiful flavor. So the fattiness, the sweetness of the uni, and then all the umami. So oh my please enjoy your final bite. Yeah. I thought that could have been Cheers. 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 Mmm. The char. Mm -hmm. So good. Mm. There's a lot going on here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that uni, that nuttiness is like, it's lingering and it's so delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Vanessa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for telling your story. I wish all the best good times on your break right now. And yeah, again, thank, thank you. Thank you for having me. The honor is all mine. Yep. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It, it just means a lot for you to share your story. And it's just so inspiring. I, I really do look forward mm -hmm. to the day that like the podcast or Rosalind can achieve the level of success, success and, and, and kind of you keep this like a beautiful humility to all of it. And so I sincerely appreciate you sharing that with us on the show today. Yeah, thank you. I'm here to yeah. root you guys on always. All right, well, that wraps it up. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Durian Pod. My name is David. And I'm Jasper. And I'm Heidi. And we will see you on the next one. Peace. Hey guys, this is Heidi from The Durian Pod. If you liked this episode and hearing other stories like it, please like, comment, and subscribe. And you can listen to us anywhere that you find podcasts. We'll see you next time.